So just 10 days ago, Jonathan and I were speaking at TED Women in Palm Springs, California, and I got to admit, it was more than a little overwhelming. I mean, you're in a room with someone who's won the Presidential Medal of Freedom, somebody else who worked with Cesar Chavez to start the United Farm Workers Union. You've got other people who are all listed among the top 100 most influential women in the world. And then there's Jonathan and me. <laughs> so I like go to bed the first night and it's like, okay, they meant to invite the other Paula Stone Williams, you know, the, the one who cured the common cold and put the first human colony on Mars. You know, that, and somehow they accidentally got me and then they just felt bad for me. So they just let me stay and have my kid come with me to talk. It, it, it was an overwhelming week. And then as soon as we left Palm Springs, I went back to Denver, where I spoke for TEDx Mile High, which is one of the largest TEDx's in the world. And I'm on a panel there with another group of people who are all in the top 100 list. And I'm thinking, wait, what? <laughs> so for the last week, I have felt just kind of lost. Really, just lost. Did you ever feel lost? David Wagner taught at the University of Washington, and he studied Native Americans on the Olympic Peninsula, where the forest is so thick, you get a couple hundred yards in, and you've lost all sense of the cardinal directions. And so the natives would teach their young people how to navigate if they got lost in that forest. And being an English professor, Wagner turned their instruction into a poem. The poem goes like this. When you're lost in the forest, stand still. When you're lost in the forest, stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. You must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask its permission to know it and be known by it. Listen, the forest breathes, it whispers, I have made this place around you. If you leave, you may return again, saying here. No two trees are the same to a raven. No two branches are the same to a wren. If what a tree or a branch does is lost on you, well, now, then you are surely lost. What do you do when you're lost in the forest? Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So John was lost, profoundly lost. He was the only child of the aged priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth who'd had a visitation from the angel Gabriel telling them they were going to have a child in their old age. And Elizabeth took in the entire message and she knew what it meant. She knew what it was like to try to take care of an infant when you were that age, how to take care of a two-year-old when you were as old as she was, and she also knew he would be a prophet. And life generally does not end all that well for prophets. And still she took in the message, and gladly took in the message. Zechariah, her religious husband, didn't take in the message so much. He refused to believe the angel Gabriel and found himself rendered speechless, which probably was a good thing for a while. <laughs> so she found out that her cousin, Mary, had also had a visitation from the angel. And so they came together and they exploded in celebration of the births of their coming, the coming births of their sons. And if you take a look at what they said, these are two very strong women with whom you would not want to mess. So when the day comes that the child is born and they ask, 
what the name is going to be, well, tradition would have it that the child would be named after his father, Zechariah. But when she said, no, his name's going to be John, everyone listened. But still, it's a patriarchal society, so they weren't really all that sure she was allowed to do that. <laughs> and so they went to Zechariah, who still could not speak. And so he wrote down, yeah, his name will be John. And so it was John. And John grew up the cousin of Jesus. You can be sure when they were children, they played together regularly. Now think about that. What would it be like to have Jesus as your playmate? <laughs> You're in the backyard, you break a dish. Your mother comes out, okay, boys, who broke the dish? It was Jesus, Mom. Jesus broke the dish. Jesus broke it. Jesus, did you break that dish? No, it was John. I swear, Mom, it was Jesus. No, John, you and I both know Jesus doesn't lie. <laughs> Busted. Imagine how many years you'd be in therapy trying to deal with a playmate who was perfect. Why can't you be perfect like Jesus was perfect? I don't know. Then came the day that Jesus came to the young adult John and said, John, to fulfill all righteousness, I want you to baptize me. And John's like, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, right, okay. No, I want you to baptize me. So he baptized Jesus. And as he did so, God spoke up audibly in a voice I think very much resembling Dame Judy Dench. I'm pretty sure of that. <laughs> it's not in the scripture, but I've got it in my head. And said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then a figure like a dove descended down from heaven to where Jesus stood. Now if John ever had any doubt in his mind about who Jesus was, that doubt is now dispelled. He just heard God speak. He saw a figure like a dove come down from heaven. He goes throughout the countryside telling everyone to repent, he said, because the Messiah is at hand. But his enthusiasm got him in trouble. Herod was the ruler of the land, not a particularly nice man, decided he liked his brother's wife much better than he liked his own wife, divorced his wife, married his brother's wife, life went on, except John spoke up publicly and said, yeah, where we come from, that's not okay. And that was as good as slamming the cell door shut in John's face because Herod sent out his soldiers with one single request, bring John back alive. He knew John was popular with people, and if he were to kill him, there might be a political uprising against him. So he decides just to put him in prison until the people can forget about him. So here John sits in prison. And like most of the Jewish people, he thought the Messiah would be a political king. That he would put together an army. He would defeat the Romans. He would bring independence back to Israel and then give the people free food, a loaf of Roman meal bread on the doorsteps every morning. It'd be wonderful. And reports start coming through the prison grapevine. Jesus doing nothing to put together an army. Jesus doing nothing to create a political empire. Jesus doing nothing to challenge Rome. Jesus hanging out with the lowest of the low and the poorest of the poor. And John thought, could I be wrong? Could it be he's not the Messiah? He'd heard God speak saw a figure like a dove come down from heaven, and yet now he is filled with doubts. And it's a good thing, too. Because doubting everything is the beginning of wisdom. That's right. 
Doubting everything is the beginning of wisdom, but it never feels that way. It always feels like death. Here's the thing. The truth will set you free, but more than likely, it's going to make you miserable first. <laughs> That's the nature of the truth. So John is lost, profoundly lost, but it's all right. Because lost, well, lost is a place too. And you're allowed to spend time in the place called lost. Some of us spend a long period of time in the place called lost, and it's all right because lost is a place too. There's a wisdom you can gain in that place called lost. You can't gain any other way. There's a knowledge about life you can discern in the place called lost that does not come to you in any other fashion. It's all right to spend time in the place called lost because lost is a place too. Now, there are people who never get lost. They're the people who never go anywhere. <laughs> but if you dare to respond to the call toward authenticity, if you dare to listen to the still small voice and take a risk, you're going to get lost. Join the crowd. Lost is a place, too. I knew from the time I was three or four years of age, I was transgender. In my naivety, I thought I got to choose. I thought a gender fairy would arrive and say, okay, what's it going to be? But alas, no gender fairy arrived, so I just lived my life. I didn't hate being a boy, I just knew I wasn't one. Went to college, got married, had kids, built a career, but the call toward authenticity has all the subtlety of a smoke alarm. And eventually, decisions have to be made. And so I came out as transgender and promptly lost every single one of my jobs. I had never had a bad review. And I lost every single job. One job I'd had for 35 years. I started that job when I was five. I, it was just, I don't want you doing the math there to figure out how old I am. I was CEO for over 20 years, took the organization from a budget of 160,000 to a budget of 4 million from working in Long Island and North Jersey to working nationwide. It's actually the organization that started this church. And I was gone in seven days. In 21 states, you cannot be fired for being transgender, but in all 50, you can be fired if you're transgender and you work for a religious corporation. Good to know. It's not easy being a transgender woman. Joseph Campbell talked a lot about the hero's journey. It's common to every single culture, every age, every language, every ethnicity group, always has the same common elements. An ordinary citizen is called onto an extraordinary journey on the road of trials. And initially, that person rejects the call because, hey, it's the road of trials. And nobody really willingly accepts a call onto the road of trials. And besides, nobody in your tribe wants you to accept the call because tribes don't want people to be extraordinary. Tribes want people to be ordinary, to be obedient. And so you reject the call under the hero's journey, but then you're miserable because you've rejected the call and you know you were called and you reject the call of God at your own peril. And then a spiritual director comes into your life, a Yoda, who gives you the confidence to accept that call, and just like that, you find yourself in the road of trials. And it's not pleasant, 
And then things get worse. You find yourself in a deep, dark, black cave. It's what John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. It's what Dante was talking about at the beginning of the Commedia, the Divine Comedy, when he said, in the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. Yes, been there. And you keep seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and daggone it, it's an oncoming train every single time. <laughs> Until finally, after spending a long period of time in that very deep, dark, black cave, you finally find your way back out onto the ordinary road of trials, which now feels like nothing. But still, your journey isn't done. You have to go all the way to the prize of great price, to the holy grail. And even when you get there, you're not done. You've got to bring it back as an offering to those from whom you have departed. And only then are you free to go. Now, all of us have been called onto the hero's journey. At some point or another in our lives, every one of us will be called onto the hero's journey. The question is not, will you be called? The question is, will you answer the call? John answered the call, and now he's in that deep, dark cave, thinking he's in prison for no reason. So he sends his followers to Jesus with a single question. Hey, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus doesn't give a yes or no answer. He says, go tell John the things you see me do and hear me say. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the poor have the gospel preached to him. And so now, you know, he's thinking, okay, so I ask a simple yes or no question. I get a riddle for an answer, but there's not a lot to do in prison. And scripture then was an oral tradition so no doubt he starts thinking through his mind, through scripture, and realizes somewhere along the line, hey, wait, Jesus is quoting the Hebrew scriptures. He wants me to think about him. So he thinks about him and more than likely came to realize that in fact Jesus was doing exactly what it was prophesied that the Messiah would do. But the story goes on. Herod's new wife's daughter is invited to do a dance at a big party. And she does a beautiful job, and Herod, being the narcissist he is, says, I will give you anything you want. She said, I'll take the head of John the Baptist on a platter for my mother. Rather odd request. <laughs> he was stuck. He said it in front of a huge crowd, so she got what she wanted, the head of John the Baptist on a platter for her mother. Not exactly a happy ending, but then the faith that looks for happy endings on this side of eternity is probably not the best kind of faith anyway. But you know what I find the most fascinating thing of that entire story to be? It's what Jesus says after John's disciples have come to him. Now, I know what I would have said if I were Jesus. I would have turned back to the crowd and I would have said, do you believe that? That guy grew up with me saw a figure like a dove come down from heaven, heard God speak, and now he's questioning who I am. You think you know somebody. <laughs> That's what I would have said. But Jesus says one single phrase. In fact, it's so short we sometimes lose it. Jesus turns to the crowd, and before he moves on to another subject, he says, there's none born of woman any greater than John. Now, the crowd had just heard about John's utter and complete failure, and yet this is Jesus' response. There's none born of woman any greater than John, so Jesus knew the truth. 
lost is a place too. And it's only those willing to go on to the deeper journey who find themselves in the place called lost. And we know from Jesus' response that it's okay. It's all right to spend time in the place called lost. So I came out as transgender and lost all of my jobs and thought I would never be in a church again. And then a friend of mine introduced me to Mark Tidd. Mark was the founder of Highlands Church in Denver, a church very similar to yours in every way, about 900 people. Within three months, I was preaching for Highlands Church. Not long after that, I met the pastors from Denver Community Church, a church of a couple thousand, again, very much like you. And I was preaching at Denver Community Church. And then people from the most popular show on Colorado Public Radio heard my sermon and asked if they could put it on CPR's show, Colorado Matters. And I said, sure, and they put it on that show, and the curator for TEDx Mile High heard that sermon and came to me and said, will you speak for TEDx Mile High? And I said, sure. And I ended up speaking there on gender equity. What I said was, there's no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. There's no way he can understand it because it's all he's ever known and all he ever will know. And conversely, there's no way a woman can really understand that because being a female is all she's ever known. But the differences between life in America as a male and as a female are massive. I know. <laughs> and ladies, it's worse than you think. And guys, you're more misogynistic than you think. I'm sorry. <laughs> So now I travel all over the country giving that message to audiences of which the females are always very happy and the males are always a little bit confused. <laughs> so then the people from TED found out that that video had been viewed 1.6 million times and so they invited Jonathan and me to speak for TED and now they're making a movie about my life and who would have thunk? If you're willing to answer that call, even though you are likely to spend a long period of time in that place called lost, you can trust. You can trust the journey. My favorite poet is Mary Oliver, and my favorite poem is The Journey. It goes like this. One day you knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. Mend my life, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. And now it's interesting because I've memorized about 20 poems, 25 or 30 maybe, and I find it interesting to memorize them because sometimes they come into your mind at times you wouldn't expect it. And it's usually your subconscious self trying to tell you something. And occasionally, a poem you know well, you forget in the middle. And those times are extremely instructive because what you forget is what you don't want to know. So in the first service today, I forgot the next line. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. What my family went through was awful. It's still hard. It will always be hard. What my son went through, 
I was his father. He lost so much. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy, though their <sighs> melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough. And a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, a new voice, a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. God, you call us onto this journey of authenticity, and we get kind of angry with you, honestly. We call you a lot of nasty names, which I'm sure you've been called worse. And yet you call us and you call us and you call us and, and we answer, oh, please, God, please, not that. But we know we've been called. And we know that we'll learn something in the place called lost. We cannot learn any other way. And we know that you will be with us and your spirit will comfort us. And so we step onto the road of trials. And we find that you are there every step of the way. Thank you for that kind of love. Amen.